The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. My name is Doug Friesen. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning as I was driving to church, I was just thinking about how blessed we are as people to have a God that welcomes us to worship him. Uh, He just looks at us and says, I want my children to worship me because he knows that it's for our abundant good. And so that's why we also welcome one another warmly is because Christ welcomes us. So welcome here this morning. And uh, I hope that this service will just help our eyes to be set on God and give us the encouragement we need to live for him today. Good morning, church. My name is Gary Schellenberg. And today I want to talk to you about missions at White Ridge Baptist Church. I have the privilege of being on the missions committee uh, with a great bunch of people led by uh, Pastor Doug. Now, the purpose of the missions committee is to advocate for our missionaries and to make you aware of their specific ministry. With some of our missionaries, there needs to be a vagueness of who they are and where they are uh, because of the problems that they could incur in those countries. Uh, we have to protect them. So why am I interested in uh, missions or what is a bit about my background with missions? Well, uh, my parents were church planters. Uh, They were missionaries in northern Manitoba and in Saskatchewan. My dad was a pastor. So I grew grew up in a missionary-minded home. Uh, We'd have lots of missionaries into our home uh, during a mission conference, and these mission conferences seemed to go all week sometimes. But during that time, I heard a lot of fascinating stories. And so this was really interesting to me and my first exposure to missions. I also had the opportunity of being on the missions committee at my uh, previous church, giving me the opportunity to uh, take uh, one summer to go to Europe and to visit some of our missionaries in the field, uh, seeing how they operated. And often uh, they were just planting the seed and they never saw any fruit, but they were faithful. In my position at Providence, I've also had the opportunity of taking um, kids on soccer tours and volleyball tours of uh, Czech Republic and of uh, Jamaica, uh, watching them as they witness through sports uh, their faith. Uh, And this is a real eye-opening experience for them as they are meeting people that um, are a lot of time atheists and have no interest in, uh, in religion. But it was It was a tremendous opportunity for them, and many of you have had these opportunities also as you have gone to India, to Bolivia, to Garden Hill, to Mexico on short-term mission trips. I also had uh, the opportunity of visiting the Kachin Church in Myanmar, where there's just been a coup, if you've been watching the news. And the Christians there are very persecuted, but you know what? It was the faithfulness of one missionary in the early 1900s that converted the Kachin people to Christianity. And now there are over 450,000 Christians in the Baptist Union in Myanmar with over a million Christians in the country, a country that you wouldn't think would be um, prone to Christianity, but the faithfulness of one missionary made that all happen. So never be discouraged. Uh, With this background, I'd like to just let you know about the missionary that I am a champion for and that I advocate for. Each member on the missions committee uh, advocates for an association or a missionary uh, that we support. Now, unfortunately, the missionary that I advocate for 
uh, cannot be mentioned because she is in a country that is one of these restricted countries. And um, so we cannot uh, give you information about the country or her name. So, but I'm gonna call her Priscilla. This does not mean that I can't share about her because I'm going to. And some of you will know who I'm referring to as I uh, talk a little longer on this. Uh, Priscilla has been sharing overseas in a restricted country for the past three and a half years. She is an English teacher by profession and her skills and experience in that area have opened uh, doors to share her faith in a place where many of us are unable to go. Um, so I asked Priscilla, why did she choose overseas missions? And she states, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go overseas on a short-term trip with my youth group. While I was there, God opened my eyes to see how lost the people in that area were, and he began to grow in me a passion for reaching that people group. I asked her, how did her life experience prepare her to go overseas? She says, well, a love for languages, education and teaching English, drawn to people in other cultures, and while at uh, Providence University, she had the opportunity of doing a teaching internship in a similar country to the one she is in now. And God used that to confirm in her uh, leading to that area of the world. So I asked her how her first year overseas went. She says, well, there were lots of ups and downs. I expected there to be more culture shock, but my earlier experience overseas eased that a lot. That said, there were definitely times of frustration and confusion when things did not happen the way I expected them to. I've been blessed to have a really close-knit group of fellow workers in the whole time I've been overseas. And that also really helped in making my first year positive experience. I asked her if there was any surprises. She says, well, there were uh, many people assume that because it is a strict country that I'm in, any conversations about faith would be difficult. But the reality is that because their faith dictates so much about their lives. There are many opportunities to share. And this is where the one-on-one -on -one comes in. I asked her, how does one consider working overseas? And she states, don't doubt God's ability to equip you. I've had no interest in ever leaving Manitoba before I went on my first trip in high school. But God in his great mercy changed my heart completely so that when it came time to move overseas, I could hardly wait to go. And now it's hard to imagine living anywhere else. And no minus 30 degrees. Uh, that's my own ad lib in there. So what a, what a fantastic testimony. So how can you support Priscilla? Well, first and foremost, you can pray. Pray for safety. Um, pray for the opportunity to share local friendships and meaningful relationships. You may also want to consider supporting her. Ministry, if that is how God leads you to participate. You can sign up for her newsletter, and there is that opportunity on the WRBC website under the missions banner. And connect with her when she's on leave in Canada. These are all concrete ways which you can support Priscilla and all WRBC missionaries. We are mandated to spread the gospel wherever we are. Some of us are called overseas, some of us are called locally, some of us are called nationally. You know, it doesn't really matter where you're called, as long as you're faithful. And at WRBC, we want to support and encourage you in however you choose to serve God. Uh, and we'd be pleased, any of us would be pleased to talk to you about this opportunity, how it fits your calling. So be encouraged today that you can have a part in encouraging others and be a part of the Great Commission. And lastly, 
Check out our webpage for stories about Priscilla and other missionaries that we support. And in the near future, we would like to have a missionary board up so that you can visually see who our missionaries are and uh, what their needs are, and that way you can support them. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gary and Doug. It occurs to me as, uh, as I listen to that today that uh, there are quite a number of the missionaries that we support who typically uh, join us online, and uh, they are with us right now. And you guys, you know who you are, uh, wherever you are around the world, and uh, we love you lots, and we pray for you lots, and we are so glad to be able to worship with you even, even right now in this real time. And uh, also, I, I know that a lot of people that we've connected with in missions, when we send teams to different countries, uh, people we've connected with in, in, in different countries that we go to, like India and Nepal and Bolivia, that, that some of them are watching right now too. And it, what a joy it is to have these connections uh, throughout the church around this globe and to worship God together. And for all the rest of you, there's others around the world from other countries who have found us online as well. And what a joy it is to worship God together. So when we sing in this next song that all the earth will shout your praise, I'm reminded that we are in this together. Brothers and sisters in this together, growing in Christ together, whether we even know each other personally or not. And what a, an amazing thing to be able to say that our God is our God. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we can do that with, with this whole church who are worshiping in so many other churches around the world. And we're going to join them. Uh, I'm going to invite you to, to stand for here. And for those of you who are at home, I, I know that some of you uh, stand in your living rooms and you sing your lungs out. I've heard you say that, and there's some that, that just reflect on the words, and I've heard you say that. But whatever it is that you do, let's enter into worship together and give all of this to God. Every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, something amazing has already happened. Jesus called you and you answered. Jesus said, I have forgiveness for you, whatever your sin is. I have grace to cover everything that you've ever done, anything that you ever will. I have grace that covers that. And you said, yes, please, thank you. And I don't know about you, but some days, some days, I trip over what I am and I see things about myself. I think things that God shows me about myself. And I realize how incredibly undeserving I am of this amazing, amazing grace. This amazing relationship with God that I didn't, didn't deserve, I, I wouldn't have had. And he said, here it is. And I just want to say, yes, please, I'll take it as much as I can get. And I, I, that leads me to gratitude. That leads me to worship. And I, I trust that it does for you, too. When God shows you how far from him we would have been. And then he reminds us how much he's given us. Lord God, I stand in this room with brothers and sisters We gather together online as brothers and sisters, a family whose head is Jesus Christ. And this world that we walk in every day, it promises all these things. It tells us what security should look like. 
It tells us what success should look like. It tells us what real love should look like. It tells us how to make life work and how we should strive to make life work. It tells us how we should make the world around us bow down to us. And all of that is a lie because we also know that, that to be thine and thine alone, like we just sang, is where treasure is. And all those other things, those are worth forfeiting for being in Jesus Christ, for living every day as those who've died to be in Jesus Christ. Because that's where our joy is. And so, like we also sang, we're not, help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be afraid to show you our weakness. Help us not to be afraid to come before you just as we are and say, this is where I am. This is where I am today. This is what I'm struggling with right now. And Lord, I just want to be focused on Jesus. So help me to focus on Jesus so that I can walk with joy as one who is thine and thine alone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for offering us this gift. And we just say yes, please, yes. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Oh, and we're going to watch a video just now. This is our scripture for this morning, read by Heinz and Joanne Newman. Good morning. I'm Joanne Newman. And I am Heinz. And I'm reading from Romans 2, 1 to 11. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. The Pharisee and the Tax Collector He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, a 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Thank you, Heinz and Joanne, for that scripture. And um, I want to uh, uh, welcome you here. It's great uh, for us to see a few people in the building. And uh, I don't have to fake it and look over there. And uh, then I'm, and <laughs> when I'm online, <laughs> no, I haven't actually done too much of that. But uh, it's good to have people in the building. Um, you know, I was just thinking uh, this past week, uh, a year ago, this Sunday, right today, a year ago, we were commissioning the team to go to Bolivia. And that just kind of did a time warp on my brain. I just uh, can't believe how, where did this past year go to? And um, I just uh, asked the Lord that he would continue with us, that uh, we would uh, be able to resume soon, all of you being in the building together and, uh, and worshiping the Lord together. I uh, also want to give uh, you uh, a little bit more of, of uh, Bill C-7. We've been following that. And incidentally, I want to say to you that if there ever comes a time when I get into the pulpit and have something to say to you about a theological, political, social issue that is speaking on my own behalf and not that of the church leadership, the board and the staff, I will probably declare that. I might even step out of the pulpit and, and declare it, that this is my view and so on. But I want you to know that the board and the staff have, are pretty tight. We talk through lots of things. I'm very in touch with both of those bodies of leadership. We are in more dialogue than we used to be also. And on some of these things that are now becoming... Uh, politicized, we are very much in agreement because the, the borders are crossing from merely political lines into moral and ethical issues. And so I want you to know that this Bill C-7, which is uh, encouraging more access to medical assistance in dying, uh, is a concern of us because we believe in the sanctity of human life. And this is the uh, PowerPoint uh, post you will find on the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, who, as you can see, is simply saying, don't expand euthanasia to include people who aren't dying. And uh, be, the reason for that is because the, the Bill C-7 has now gone to Senate, and they have revised it. Because they've revised it, it now has to go back to Parliament, and now they're going to have a look at those revisions, which are opening up even wider the accessibility to assisted dying. And so these are things that, that are, are grave and, and uh, cause us, us grief because we believe that God has created life. And, um, and so Bill C-6, Bill C-7, these are things we want to pray about. And right now, before I get into my message, I would just like to lead us in a word of prayer for our government. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you are sovereign God over all, and we keep our eyes fixed on you. Though the climate of our cultures and our society and the political, social norms change and fluctuate along with the laws of the land. Lord God, our eyes are fixed on you. Our, our true north is in you, O oh Lord God. And so we raise our voice in prayer. We raise our voice in objection as citizens of this great land, Canada. But we know, God, that we're not the majority voice in Canada, and that we know, Lord, that, that oftentimes our country, our government will not follow your true word and the things that we feel are of, of more value than many things our government is pursuing. And so, God, we just raise our voice and we still maintain that we are called upon to intercede for Canada. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, that you, you might move in the political process in Bill C-7, in Bill C-6, in many other bills, in other law-making uh, agencies and peoples and governments, and in the courts themselves. Lord, we ask you to have your way, and we pray that, that we will be the conscience of our society, be the salt, be the light. And so we lift up to you our governments on all levels and ask you that we will be good citizens that treat the politicians with respect and love and show not only the truth of God, <clears throat> but also the tone of God uh, in our dealings. So we commit to you these things, and we thank you that we can do this uh, with all reverence and fear before you. We just ask you now, Holy Spirit, to you open our hearts, open our minds to your word, and enable us to understand more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as we continue into the book of Romans, we are in chapter 2, and uh, this morning, as uh, you heard Heinz and Joanne read, <clears throat> we're looking at a different portion of the scripture, moving on from chapter 1. But before I get into that, I want to just set the stage for you a little more about what kind of place Rome was. The city of Rome in the first century would have been an incredible place to live. About a million people filled with all kinds of decadence and wealth, sport and theater, also sin and vice, as well as the brutal practices of the arena. The things like gladiators were not just movie things. They actually took place in the Colosseum. And of course, there was sexual immorality in Rome, as there was in Corinth, where Paul was writing this letter from, and the ancient world was known for that and often in cities. And these are things that Paul writes about, as we have already seen. By the time of Christ, which is before Paul, of course, the Greek mythology had heavily influenced Rome, the entire republic of Rome, including the city, the capital city, and so they'd, they'd Romanized a lot of the Greek gods, which meant that they were polytheistic. They also had what was called the cult of emperor worship. That meant that the reigning Caesar and emperor was also considered godlike. And so they had his image on their coins, and they had statues of him, and citizens were obligated to bow down to the Caesar, the emperor. 
Now, this was, of, of course, a problem with Jews and Christians because Jews and Christians are monotheistic. They believe, we believe in one true and living God. And so, obviously, this became a problem. It was interesting because Rome was known to be a republic of such tolerance as they absorbed more cultures and, and, and communities and people groups. They let them have their religion as long as they also could worship Caesar and, and, and conform to the patterns of Roman society. Does that kind of sound familiar, that uh, in the midst of uh, a country that prides itself in tolerance, People who have certain views are not tolerated. Sounds a lot like Canada right now. You can live here, you can thrive as long as you embrace our values, as long as you follow our ways. And many of those ways are contrary to God's laws. So Christians began to experience persecution. First under Nero, uh, who was perhaps the most brutal and perverted emperor because of his hatred for Christians. And I want you to know that when Paul penned the words of Romans and they got the letter, Nero was at the beginning of his reign of terror against Christians and um, in around 57 AD. I want you also to know that like most New Testament churches, we're not talking about Paul writing one big church that all met together. There were instead several house churches in Rome and uh, that included the capital city, and they would get together for study, for fellowship, and to read Scripture. An example of this is in the very last chapter of Romans 16.5, Paul greets the church that meets at the home of Priscilla and Aquila. I thought it was interesting that Gary was referencing Priscilla earlier. In addition to persecution that came from the outside, however, there was also conflict within the church at Rome. And that came about because the large majority was because there were both Jewish and Gentile believers within the church at Rome. And uh, probably the church was started by the Jewish believers who were converted years earlier at the day of Pentecost and returned to Rome. But now there was a division, and what made it even worse was that in 49 AD, the emperor before Nero named Claudius issued an edict that persecuted Jews, and Jews escaped Rome. He died five years later, and they were all, all coming back. And so those who were Jewish Christians now came back to their home church in Rome, but now the church was mostly Gentile. Then, a couple years later, Paul sends this letter, and part of what is on his heart is that this Jewish-Gentile group of people who are now the church of Jesus Christ, that they would learn to get along. That's why we will see as we go through Romans that oftentimes Jew-Gentile matters are very important. I want to say also that that um, it is a wonderful thing to be able to have the Word of God. And some of the earliest manuscripts of Scripture um, are, are talking about the, the conflicts that existed. And uh, these are the kinds of fragments that are found. And I remember studying that there are about 5,000 different fragments from all over parts of the world, ancient world. And one of them, the most... Uh, the, oldest fragments is from 130 A.D., 
And one of the earliest examples of the entire New Testament being together is from around 350 A.D. And so I, I want you to know that when we don't have Paul's letter, we don't have the autograph of Paul, but we have really, really good textual criticism that has shown us what God's Word has said, what Paul has written. And I want you to know that, that Paul... Uh, is the first apostle or church leader that has written or visited Rome. And so this was an incredibly important moment in the life of the church. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to say three things about God from chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. You'll notice that the sermon title this morning is called God and the Gospel, the Great Leveler of All People. And so what Paul says in the verses I'm going to share is that God's judgment is toward the judgmental, God's kindness is toward the repentant, and God's fairness is toward all people. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about the context that we're in. And I want you to be a bit imaginary this morning with me. If you would just go with me in your imagination that you're living in the year 57 A.D., in Rome, the bustling capital city, a small gathering of Christians is gathering in the house church that you belong to, and you make your way there because you've just heard that the revered Apostle Paul's letter has arrived with messengers, and they're going to start reading it tonight. It's incredible, an opportunity. You go with your family, maybe you're 30 people crowded in a room somewhere, and you are worshiping and praying, and then the elder of the house church gets up and he begins to read the letter of the Apostle Paul. Starts by introducing Paul and saying to the church at Rome, and he goes into talking about the good news of Jesus, and, and then he gets into a very sad part, a raw part about the wrath of God being revealed against all wickedness, and the Roman Christians are thinking like, we see that all around us in Rome. And then the final words of that first section go into a list of sins, verses 29 to 32 of chapter 1. And, and as they read the sins all the way down this list, the, the Christians are listening to this and saying, yeah, we see this in Rome all around us. And then it says in verse 29, filled with all manner of right, unrighteousness. Well, the, the, the evening is getting late, if you could imagine, and the, the discussion breaks out after he pauses after chapter 1, even though the chapter divisions hadn't existed yet. But this, this creates all kinds of discussion. There's questions being asked. Some are trying to respond. There's discussion flowing about what's going on in Paul's letter. And so finally the elder decides it's just too late, and he says, Look, let's dismiss tonight and come back tomorrow night. We'll continue on with the next section. And so a family begins to make their way out into the night, and as they are walking home, the father of the family of, say, five or six, are making their way to their home, and this father was a Jewish Christian. He happened to be a Jewish Christian who grew up knowing the law of Moses. And as he walked home with his family, he couldn't help but comment on the final words of chapter 1, verses 29 to 32. He started to say things like, these are, these are despicable things that have no place in, among the people of God. Can you imagine men with men, women with women? These things ought not to be. I thank God that, 
that I am not one of those. I thank God that our family is not like that, filled with malice, envy, murder. Can you imagine? Oh, I thank God that we're not like that. There are people right here in Rome like that. We know some of them, don't we? Gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Oh my, thank God that we are not like that. And you heard it, God gives them over. God gives them over to that sin. Paul was right. You need to preach it, Paul. Why does he give them over? Well, he gives them over because they deserve it. That's why. That's why God gives people over to sin. Yes, they deserve it. Paul writes the truth boldly. We need more of this kind of preaching in our pulpits. These are people that need this kind of teaching. Boy, if our neighbors could have only heard that message from Paul this evening. Boy, do they need to hear it. You can hear in this father's voice the tone of self-righteousness, can't you? You can hear a little bit of the tone of the parable from Luke 18 that was read to us. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, and so on. Well, if you'll continue with me on this imaginary story, the family, this same Jewish family, goes back, Jewish Christian family, they go back to the house church the very next evening, and of course the elder picks up the, the Apostle Paul's letter and he carries on where he left off in chapter 2. And he opens up to chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you judge, practice the same things. Well, the Jewish man is getting a little uncomfortable at this point. The tone and the focus of Paul's letter has changed. He's not talking now in chapter 2 to the non-religious people, the sinners. He's addressing the religious folk now, the moralists, the church of Rome he's talking to, the Jewish believers especially. Paul has moved from chapter 1 to 2 from deconstructing the arguments of the not knowing about righteousness to now demolishing the I'm not as bad as you are kind of righteousness. And he's saying to both groups, you have no excuse. So this is making this Jewish family uncomfortable. And the letter goes on. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Chapter 2, verse 2. And so today, as we look at this scripture, the first thing we notice about it is that God's judgment falls upon the judgmental. Paul is teaching here that God's judgment falls upon the judgmental. Because in passing judgment, they themselves are also guilty. Let's understand this better. Take another imaginary story for me, with you, if, if you will. Imagine that you are allowed to go to a courtroom in the city and attend the public hearing of a man accused of heinous crimes, gross and indecent crimes. And and as the thing unfolds, you get so in, engaged in it that you go back day after day. And several days into the trial, you, you all of a sudden find out 
the news breaks that the judge that is sitting over this trial has been found not just accused, but actually found guilty of the very same crimes that the one who's on the stand is, is being accused of. This is a travesty of justice. Indeed, in our, cult, in our uh, court system, it's probably impossible. But again, imagine that were to happen. What do you think in your gut What do you think of this judge sitting on the bench in judgment over someone when he is guilty of the same things? That's what Paul is doing in chapter 2. That's exactly what he's doing. He's saying no one is fit to judge but God alone. Now, how can he say that? Well, let's talk about this. He says that you're guilty of practicing or doing the same things. What is the meaning of that when Paul says that? I think there's three possible interpretations. Number one, one way to understand it is that they were literally people in the Roman church who were doing exactly what those that are described in chapter 1, 28 to 32. They were doing those things. I mean, you can read the list. I don't need to read it right now. But, but every manner of gross or indecent or wrong sinful behavior literally was happening in the church. Maybe Paul knew that. And so that's one interpretation that they were literally doing. It's the church is guilty of this sometimes, folks. We sit in judgment, and then all of a sudden something breaks in the news where some church leader is found guilty. Do I have to say that Ravi Zacharias is one of the most difficult things to, to read about in these days. Another way of understanding this is through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus took the law of Moses and he said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust, you have done so in your heart. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, if you have enough hatred in your heart to say, raka, you fool to your brother, you are guilty of murder. So another way of understanding what Paul is saying, you practice the same things, is by saying simply that in the spirit of the law, you're guilty. Your heart is just as dark. You might be guilty of it in a lesser way, physically, outwardly, but you are guilty. And then a third way, which I think is very probable to understand Paul's point, is to not focus on the vile sins of chapter 1, but rather to take them as an entire lump, verses 29 to 32. And if you'll notice in that lump of list of sins, there is gossip right alongside greed or any other kind of sin that's listed there. And so in the midst of it, what Paul could be saying is, you're guilty of this. Now, you might want to pride yourself that you're not guilty of those two or three in the list that are, whoa, the big bad sins, but you're guilty of sin. And so the main point is not that there are people righteous enough to sit in judgment over sin. No, he's not talking about the degree of sin, but the attitude that lords it over other sinners because you think you're better than someone else. Both are in need of grace. 
John MacArthur said this, the self-righteous moralist makes two errors in judgment. They underestimate the height of God's standard of righteousness, which encompasses the inner as well as the outer life, and they also underestimate the depth of their own sin. So if Paul's first point is that God is going to judge all sinners, the religious kind and the non-religious kind, and he's going to judge all sins, the sins that are gross and, and, and not spoken of, and the sins that are more socially acceptable because God is a God of justice. And what Paul is really nailing down in this chapter is the, the, the sin of self-righteousness. What Paul has done brilliantly, I think, is that he's taken the jury that is sitting over chapter 1 sins and he's putting now them on the stand and he's saying, you're guilty. You're guilty too. And so God uses the same criteria for the good sinners and the bad sinners. And the most damning words of Jesus were saved for the good sinners. The ones, the Pharisees, that thought they didn't need much from God. And the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector really demonstrates the attitude that God wants to see in all of us. The kind of attitude that says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So moving on then to the second point, I want to say that Paul is demonstrating that God's kindness is toward the repentant. And conversely, you could say that his wrath is toward the unrepentant. Verse 4, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul is not saying anything new here, of course. Paul is simply saying who God is and what he is like. He's patient. God is patient. God is loving. He's slow to anger and he's rich in love. And throughout the scriptures, we see the patience of God. Think about in the days of Noah, it says in the scriptures that perhaps 120 years he waited to see if people would turn as, as Noah preached righteousness to that generation. In the days of Lot, when Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, he waited, he waited, and then saved Lot and his family out of that wickedness in the end. The days of the people of Canaan, it says in the scriptures that, that God waited and waited before Joshua and the Israelites went in to take the land back that had been promised to Abraham. God is patient with Canada as well. God is patient. God is, is speaking to Canadians. God wants his voice to be heard through his people as one by one we draw them closer to hear the truth and the, of God in the tone of God. But there's a point to God's patience, and the point is made very clearly. Paul says, don't presume upon it because the point of God's patience is to lead people to repentance. That's the point of God's patience, to lead people to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God, patient, forbearing, kind, and yet, clearly, people will reap what they sow. 
And so the next verse, Paul displays the reality of what is coming for those who persist in self-righteous, judgmental attitudes that think of themselves less in need of God, as if God grades on the curve and somehow as long as they're able to see themselves as better than the next person, they're okay. They're religiously proud. Verse 5 Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, you know this intuitively. I'll say it anyway, though. You know that a right heart, a godly heart, a soft heart, a penitent heart is a non-judgmental heart. It's not thinking of the sins of others. It's not comparing your righteousness with someone worse off than you. It does not rejoice when someone falls into sin. It is not happy about that, whether it is sexual brokenness or gossip or greed or whatever sin. Another person's sin is never an object of leveraging your self-righteousness. Never. The right attitude towards any sin in me or in anyone else is grief. Grief. Oh God, this person was created in your image. Oh, that image has been marred. Oh God. This person was, was redeemed by Jesus, could be redeemed by Jesus. Oh God, they resist you still. I want to tell you a story to illustrate. At 7.14 a.m., January the 24th, 1989, a pale, quiet, and submissive man was escorted into a stark, sparsely furnished room in the Florida State Prison in Gainesville. Strong hands forcefully guided him to his seat, but he offered no resistance. His resting place was a heavy oak chair called Old Sparky by the inmates. His arms and legs were firmly secured. A leather strap was cinched under his chin. A black veil was covered his face. At 7.15 a.m., an anonymous executioner threw the switch for one minute cycle. 2,000 volts at 12 amps jolted through the man's body. And at 7.16 a.m., exactly one minute later, a Gainesville coroner certified that Ted Bundy, a man called one of the most diabolically clever serial killers in history, was dead. With over 20 mutilations of torture-style murders to his credit, few would point to Bundy as an example of goodness, but the presence of true, palpable evil wasn't snuffed out in the electric chair that cool Florida morning. According to a report filed by newspapers, evil was waiting outside the prison walls. In the dark hours before the dawn, a carnival roared in the pasture across the street from the prison. Wearing costumes, waving signs, laughing and chattering, hundreds celebrated the impending execution. Some bundled up their toddlers and brought them along. An unidentified man came sporting a rubber Ronald Megan mask with Burn Bundy t-shirts, dangling a child stuffed bunny with a miniature noose 
A chorus of middle-aged revelers waved sparkers, sang on top of old Sparky to the tune of old Smokey. He bludgeoned the poor girls all over their heads. Entrepreneurs capitalized. A stark restaurant owner had been selling coffee and donuts. A man with, named Rick had, uh, from Central Florida was selling tiny electric chairs. The spectacle flickered and, f- and flared on under the shifting gaze of TV floodway lights on top of vans, exhaust from 10 acres of cars were smelled, recreational vehicles, mobile units, and so on. A Gainesville radio said this, to give the appliances the morning off so that Ted gets his full share of the juice. I won't read on. Who was less pleasing to God? That morning. The man who committed atrocities or the people that turned it into a carnival of fun. You see, the gospel of grace confronts us, all of us, We're all more alike than we are different. And if we can take any kind of pleasure in someone else's brokenness or in someone else's punishment, if we can obsess over it, if we can be preoccupied with it and condemn it more than we could be ever preoccupied with our own sin or contrite over our own sin and brokenness, then maybe we don't understand grace at all. John Piper wrote this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Parents, I want to just say something to you. you. As you teach your children about Jesus, about religion, about gospel, about Bible, about Christianity? Are you teaching the true heart of the gospel of grace? Not not the pecking order religious system that somehow gets passed off as Christianity. Are you teaching that we all are in desperate need of a Savior? And that from heaven's perspective, the sins of Ted Bundy and your sins don't look all that different when you are standing next to the glory of perfection in Jesus Christ, who, whose righteousness alone is fit to make us fit for heaven. And when parents teach their children about this, are we, are we talking about the look good kind of religion, or are we talking about the be good kind of religion? Are we talking about the at least be better than the next kid on the block kind of religion? Or are we talking about the kind of righteousness that gets in the heart? You know the best way to do this? The best way to pass this lesson on to your children is by you just telling them how you are learning these deeper lessons of grace yourself. Well, let's finally go to the last point of the message, and that's that God is fair toward all people. In verse 6, uh, it says, 
clearly God will render to each according to his works. Paul describes two kinds of people. One is in verse 7 and one is in verse 8. He says in verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. In verse 8, and yet for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul continues this description of the two kinds of people. He starts in verse 9 by saying there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and then the Greek. And in verse 10 he says, but for glory, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and then the Greek. Why is it that he points out the Jew first and then the Greek? I think there's a couple of reasons. And Primarily, it is because God is always going to hold his people accountable first. Someone said that the the church is more to be condemned for not being revived than the world is for not being converted. In in 1 Peter 4, 17, Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's where it begins And I think that's always consistent, and it's for two reasons. Number one is because God's people, whether it's the Jewish people of the Old Testament or us as Christians, uh, we are given more knowledge. We are given more, and to him who has been given much, much will be required. I think also because, secondly, we represent God. We are guides for the unreligious. We We are guides. We are signposts. We are the ones who are ambassadors for Jesus. And if the blind are leading the blind, then the leaders are going to be held very responsible. And so Jesus says he doesn't want anybody doing false advertising. And so the self-righteous who strut around thinking that the law was given to just make them feel better about themselves, they're wrong. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride, and the gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. Paul is not teaching in verse 6 that we're saved by works. Nobody can contort this passage to say that. We're not saved by our good deeds, our performance. Paul is simply saying that when a life has come under the grace of God, when a sinner has repented, when Jesus has become all because you have seen that you need Jesus just as much as the vile sins of, of Romans 1, that, that life takes on a trajectory. That life takes on a transformation. You can never be the same again. And though you can still and may still sin, you get on back on this, the path of righteousness. The, the path of righteousness is a sin-killing path. And so you get back on it and, and God's grace restores you. Because the grace of God, it says in Titus 2.12, says, says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives. So this is a scripture that is warning us. It's a warning to the religious. It's a warning for us to, to not think that we have a license to sin because we're Christians. That God does not have some special people that he has one, one kind of code for and then the rest of people. No, no. God is saying... Be careful, don't, you, don't, don't, don't think that grace is cheap, grace. 
And Paul is not trying to undermine anybody's assurance of salvation. You should have security that you are a child of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you because of the resurrection. You should have assurance that you belong to God. You should have peace with God, the joy of being in a secure place with God. You can have that. Paul is not, Paul is not destroying that. He's simply saying God doesn't show any partiality. That's what he ends in verse 11 saying, if you've run to Christ and you found refuge, then you should be filled with gratitude for what he's done for you. And the sins of others are not your preoccupation and certainly not your judgment. Perhaps to press the matter a little further, how would you respond if you arrived at heaven's gate and as soon as you enter the gates of heaven, the first two people you see are people that you don't like? People that you didn't think should even be there. Maybe uh, a person that was a Christian professing but didn't finish very well. Maybe like the thief on the cross, uh, a person who didn't live their whole life well but then finished well. What if the person whose crime that the thief on the cross was there for, what if the victim of, the, of that crime, what if that person was standing ahead of one of those three crosses watching the perpetrator of that crime die a, a cruel Roman death, hearing the words of Jesus say, today you're going to be with me in paradise. What would be the response, the visceral response of the person that is saying, you don't let him into paradise. You see, that tests our concept of grace. It it betrays us in two ways. Number one, it betrays us by recognizing that we don't understand the gravity of our sin. And number two, we don't understand the grandeur of God's grace. We can all be like little Jonah's. Little Jonas that don't want to go and preach to Nineveh. Those people that don't deserve to be saved. And we can be blind to our undeservedness. Let's pray. Father, your word is, your word is a double-edged sword. It, it's got the one edge that is going to cut down to the sins of Roman one, Romans 1 and the people that Romans 1 is addressed to. And the other side of the edge of that sword is, on, is, is the sins of the religious and righteous and the Romans 2 crowd that you are addressing through that. Father, would you help us to let your word penetrate and, and cut deeply and do what you need to do in our lives so that we will all come to see that, that we're in need, great need of your grace. We confess, Lord, our self-righteousness. We ask you, Jesus, to be our all in all, to fill our vision so that we will not have judgmentalism in our hearts, that we will not be hypocritical. We pray in your name, amen. Lord God, let that be our prayer of gratitude now as we finish this time. We thank you for the blood of Jesus giving us something that we didn't earn something that we wouldn't be able to maintain. Just help us to live with gratitude 
because of it. Help us to live knowing that you've given us this grace. Help us to not cheapen your grace. Help us to continue to, to live as, as those who have died to our sin. And more and more, help us to be Christ-like in honor, in honor of your Son who has saved us. Thank you for meeting us here today and for the word of truth that we've been given. And I pray that you bless each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have a wonderful day. Thank mm-hmm. you.